to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, March 27, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. In 2006, the International Astronomical Union reclassified Pluto as a dwarf planet. But not every planetary and space scientist agreed. In fact, three years later, the debate over whether our beloved outer orbiter is a planet or not is still a pretty hot topic. Recent discoveries of icy Kuiper Belt objects and hot exoplanets have forced scientists to rethink previous classification of planets and other objects in our solar system. This week, we're broadcasting the American Museum of Natural History's 2009 Isaac Asimov Memorial Debate, which took place earlier this month. Moderated by Neil deGrasse Tyson, six leading space scientists debate just what makes a planet a planet. In May of 1959, British novelist and physicist C.P. Snow delivered his infamous Two Cultures lecture. What he didn't know was that the gap between science and the humanities he so vividly described would still persist 50 years later. That's why, on May 9, 2009, Science in the City, the Science Communication Consortium, Science Debate 2008, and Discover Magazine bring you Two Cultures in the 21st Century, a full-day conference at the New York Academy of Sciences. We'll bring together visionaries, scientists, authors, and the media to explore the persistence of the two cultures gap and how we can overcome it. Join Pulitzer Prize winner E.O. Wilson, former Congressman John Porter, Segway inventor and entrepreneur Dean Kamen, and many others at this historic event. Early bird pricing lasts until April 1st. For more information, visit www.nyas.org slash two cultures. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm an astrophysicist here at the American Museum of Natural History, where I also serve as the Frederick P. Rose Director of the Hayden Planetarium. This evening's subject is from Pluto to Plutoids, a look at the new solar system. There have been books titled The New Solar System for the past 30 years. Every few years there's something new and somebody puts out the new solar system. Maybe we'll have to do this again in a few years. It turns out almost exactly 10 years ago we were designing the new, what would become the Rose Center for Earth and Space. And we saw that some new objects were being discovered in the outer solar system. But we're about to cut metal. We're about to invest $230 million in the world's most modern and largest museum of the universe. We saw that these new bodies being discovered in the outer solar system were kind of icy. They had orbits that were odd, like Pluto's orbit. We thought to ourselves, perhaps Pluto might be a member of this new class of object being revealed. So we opened the new exhibits in the year 2000, grouping Pluto with these new objects. And while we were in the grouping mood, we looked around the rest of the solar system to see what else would be grouped together. We grouped the gas giants, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. We grouped the rocky planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. The asteroid belt orbiting between Mars and Jupiter. And this new zone beyond Neptune, where Pluto was a member, we grouped that together too, a new family photo of the solar system. We didn't do this sort of in a vacuum. We actually held a panel, much like this, in 1999. And in that panel, we invited all the people who mattered in that conversation. One of the discoverers of the first icy body in the outer solar system. We had the biographer of Clyde Tombaugh, 
the discoverer of Pluto back in 1930. You got to get him. We had one of the people on the committee for the International Astronomical Union's nomenclature group and others to discuss and debate what to do with Pluto. We here were not convinced that we should do anything different from where we were headed and continued in that vein. The New York Times caught a hold of it. It took them a year, but they wrote about the exhibit a year later. Page one story in the New York Times, Pluto not a planet, only in New York. <laughs> the lesson there is not so much that we did something different with Pluto. The lesson is that we were learning so much more about the solar system that perhaps the time has come that we need to rethink, if not our nomenclature, our lexicon, but perhaps how we should go forward thinking about the contents of what orbits the sun. And so today, I've got some of the world's experts. Uh, there's a panelist who was originally invited but could not make it. His wife uh, had an accident, not a bad accident, but it, she's doing fine, uh, injured her leg and could not walk. He stayed home. In replacement for him, we have the first panelist that I will introduce to you. Uh, coming to stage right now is a friend and colleague here at the American Museum of Natural History, Stephen Soder. He's a research associate here at the museum. And it was, in fact, Steve Soder who first called to my attention the fact that maybe something was going on in the outer solar system that needed our closer attention. And so, really, it's Steve Soder's fault, <laughs> not mine. He's an expert on what's going on in the outer solar system. We'll get back to him. Coming to the stage now is Alan Stern. He is the principal investigator of the first and only mission to Pluto that's en route right now called the New Horizons mission. It's his baby. He birthed it in 2006. It's on its way to Pluto on huge engines, so it gets there before he gets really old <laughs> and should arrive in 2015, uh, the fastest hunk of hardware ever launched from Earth. Alan Stern is a planetary scientist at the Southwest Research Institute in Texas and just recently served a tour of duty in Washington as head of, head of science at NASA in Washington, D.C., where, in fact, he still lives. Uh, next coming to the stage is Jack Lissauer. Spends most of his professional time uh, solving problems related to planets, planets' orbits, and the like on a computer. Not only what planets are doing as they interact with each other, but how they got there in the first place from the disk, the cloudy disks from which they were born. And so that's, you need a theorist in the room anytime you talk about what things are and what they look like, because they can help keep you honest in ways not otherwise possible. Jack Lissauer is a planetary scientist with NASA Ames in Moffett Field, California. Uh, coming next is Sarah Seeger. Sarah? Sarah is a planetary scientist at MIT, and her expertise is exoplanets. You know, the catalogs of planets is not just what we have in our own solar system, no matter how you're counting Pluto in that tally. We've got more than 300 known outside of our solar system orbiting other stars. She's one of the world's experts on that subject, how to detect them, what they're doing, where they're found, and the like. Next is Gibor Basri, professor of astronomy at UC Berkeley in California, and he's an expert on the upper end of these objects uh, that we think of as planets, but in fact, at some point, a planet becomes a star, and what's it doing in between, in that zone? We call these brown dwarfs. He's one of the world's experts on brown dwarfs, and the formation of stars, and the transition from being a planet to being a star. He'll cap the end of whatever is going on that leads up to that. So Gabor, thanks for coming from California there. Last and certainly not least is someone, I won't call him Mr. Pluto, I'll call him Pluto's Pitbull. This is Mark Sykes. He's a planetary scientist at the Planetary Science Institute in Arizona. He actually is uh, the head of that institute. And he is 
one of the most vocal critics of everything we did here, and he willingly entered the lion's den, I will say. He was smiled and willingly did this. He's not only one of the most vocal critics, he's also a little bit of an activist, sort of setting up petitions and things. We'll get back to that. Can you so hear Mark, me now? I'm, I'm going to start with you. Uh, you know, the IAU is in the middle of all this. You know, we could have just hashed it out as scientists, either in the ring or in the published pages or in the coffee lounges. So the IAU, the International Astronomical Union, why are they involved in this at all? And by the way, how, how many members are in the IAU? Just remind me. Uh, I think it's about... 6,000 6, or something like that? What percentage of the total active research scientists is that? Well, I don't know about percentage of total active research scientists. Uh, uh, in the, uh, the major organization for, for international astronomy, though for uh, planetary science, there are actually larger organizations such as the AGU in terms of planetary membership. So what you're saying is whatever the IAU thinks is kind of irrelevant because the planetary folks have their own organization. Well, no, I mean, the IAU can have... You're just dissing the IAU, aren't you? No, no, they, could, they couldn't resist getting into this, into this uh, debate because it wasn't a necessary problem to resolve. It was a question of nomenclature. You find this object out there in the solar system that's bigger than Pluto, Eris, uh, formerly Xena, warrior planet. And, and what are you going to call it? And, and so they felt that... Uh, so you're well, talking about in this outer zone... In this Kuiper outer zone, belt. the Kuiper Belt, yeah. Yeah. So, so we found a bigger object than Pluto. Right. So that sort of called the question. That called the question for, for some people that th th saw it as an opportunity either to nail down Pluto's planethood or to kill it. it. caused a political conflict within the organization, and it was a matter of who won at the end of the day. So, uh, uh, and they're winning, it's a vote. They voted. The well, yes, and I think they actually changed their rules in order to have a vote of the people who were left at the end of this conference. And so there was no advance notice that this was going to happen prior to the, prior to the meeting. It, what happened was that uh, there was a committee of people who came in uh, uh, prior to the meeting who had decided on a definition that they're going to put forward. When it was put forward, and that was planets around objects orbiting the sun, there was such a brouhaha by a group of people there. Wait, let's clarify. This committee, that uh, definition saying round objects around the sun meant Pluto is in. It meant Pluto was in. In fact, they even, they even said Pluto's moon Charon was in as the planet. They made Pluto and Charon as a double planet. Charon and Pluto's moon. Yeah, because they orbit. They don't care because they orbit around a point in between the two of them, like a like a dumbbell, like a lopsided dumbbell. So that was kind of an interesting uh, uh, conclusion. But it uh, it kind of rattled uh, a few people's cages. And uh, I don't know if you were, I wasn't there. Were you there? No, I was at the beach. Oh. Yes. Uh, <laughs> stayed away from the yeah. bus and the meeting. Well, they had good beer in Praga here. I mean, that's the problem. You mix, you mix alcohol and astronomers and, and weird things will happen. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so there was a revolt at the meeting and they made modification of their rules so that they have this vote at the end of the meeting. The, the actual uh, uh, definition that was going to be voted on wasn't known until that last day, as I understand. And uh, by then there was like 400 people left and they were all, you know, happy with the with a totally different uh, definition, which I'm sure you'll get into. The, so that uh, other definition excludes Pluto. Excludes okay. Pluto and so Ceres and Charon and and the other kind of now, uh, poor may, little may guys. Now, I remind you and the audience that when you visited my office two weeks after the New York Times article, you complained that and accused us <laughs> of going against IAU edicts by rethinking Pluto's definition. So you were defending the IAU. At I don't that think that was you had a point of view that differed from your own. And then the IAU did something wrong with it. I just want to make that clear. 
No, 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 wait a minute. No, 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 no. I recall you. Know, I was not about the IU and, and its dicta. I was arguing about the reasonableness of, of how you group things together. And I was arguing with you about whether what you were doing made sense from a, from a physical standpoint. That didn't, it, you know, the IU okay, was, so was not a major that. issue. Uh, Gabor, you wrote an article called What is a Planet, I remember correctly. What, what, did you, did. what did you decide was a planet at the time? Oh, by what? the way, this whole debate was not really whether Pluto is a planet or not. It was what the definition of a planet is. And then you decide whether Pluto fits that. And so, yeah, right. then you get to test that. <laughs> <laughs> so I did write an article in which I tried to define a planet in, in an astrophysical sense. So I didn't want to restrict myself to the solar system. I wanted to think about the overall problem and, and try to come up with a, a good definition. What I came to in that thinking was that really there are f actually four different arenas that people are taking the argument in, and those arenas don't really fit with each other. So you have people who want to define a planet by what its characteristics are, what the physical object is. You have people who want to define a planet by what it's doing, like orbiting a star or orbiting with a whole bunch of friends. Uh, you, you actually, the public doesn't... A community definition. A community definition. The public doesn't really get into this, but astronomers are actually quite vociferous about defining a planet by how you make it. So uh, m many of the arguments that I have with my colleagues are w with people who like characteristics as an arena versus people who like how you make it as, as the arena for defining. Does it, does it matter to you that most classification schemes that have ever been devised are are dominated by observational characteristics and not by a theoretical understanding? Does that matter to you? I think it matters a great deal because an, a classification scheme ought to classify observed objects. I mean, we're, we're astronomers, we, we look out, we see something, we want to know what it is. Uh, if you just want to talk about theoretical objects, you could just do that in philosophy instead of astronomy. <laughs> well, I got to pause there. From, the theorists here. I'm just fine with that. In fact, I was on not the panel which talked about what planets are in the solar system, but what should be defined as a planet around another star. And it's interesting that those of us who are theorists were the most vociferous in saying that it should be the properties of the object and not how it forms. Is that right? Okay, well, that's, that's good. Yeah, Sarah, Sarah. Well, the problem is for these other planets around other stars is we're unable to infer what those properties are. So you want to call a planet something related to its mass. We can't get the mass of those planets. But, but I thought you get the, the mass in an exoplanet. Don't you have their masses? I thought you have their masses. We have an image here. I hope it's going to show up. It's got three <laughs> objects orbiting a central blob, which is the star. And we measure the brightness of these things. And to get a mass, it's called direct imaging. We actually need to use models to infer how massive the planets are. So that's one problem that we have right now. It sort of really um, hits on the problem of the debate we're having in exoplanets about what is a planet. And like Neil already said, no one seems to really care that much, <laughs> except the people who are making the discoveries, because everybody wants to be the first one who found or saw a direct image of a planet around another star. But wait, wait, so Sarah. Back to Jack. So, so Gabor, what you were off in the middle? Where were you headed? Yeah, the, the, well, I left out the fourth, the fourth arena in which planets are defined, and that's the one we're hitting right now, which is culture. That is, people. People have to uh, like the definition of planet, or they they push one definition or another, and you what can't do you say really. What you mean, non-astronomers? 
uh, both astronomers and non-astronomers, but there are a lot more non-astronomers than there are astronomers out there. Uh, and so part of this problem was, you know, in, in the brown dwarf arena, people, you know, trying to get public attention by having found a planet versus not having found a planet. Uh, but any definition that one proposes really has to pass muster with the public, or it's just not going not gonna to make it. Not going to make it as a news item. It's not going to make it as a news item. It's not going to make it as a definition that, either. Gabor, are you telling me that your colleagues, some of whom, if they found just another star around another star, that's not newsworthy, but if they say they found a planet that is newsworthy, so they may be swayed into calling it a planet, just that's, so they can get the press. That's definitely what part of the argument was about, yes. We're, we're human. We like, we like <laughs> fame and fortune. <laughs> okay, uh, Alan, you also have been vocal on the what is a planet issue. You've had papers with similar titles, if not exactly that title. And what, what definition would you have been happy with, quite apart from what went on at the IAU meeting in Prague? Well, I think that the only kinds of definitions that actually work and don't produce sort of silly, silly pedagogical disconnects are ones that are based upon the characteristics of the object. I think that the IAU made it way too hard. I think most of the people in the audience would agree when the Starship Enterprise shows up in front of an object and Kirk says, look at that out the window, you can tell right away whether it's a planet or not by its characteristics. And so I vote for a characteristic-based so like definition. In courts. If, if you can't define it, but you know it when you see it, is that? Well, that's a fair way to put it. Because at its root, all the other objects in astronomy are classified by their characteristics. A star is characterized by the fact that it's, it's, it's doing nuclear fusion for a living. Satellites of planets are characterized by their characteristics. Uh, comets by their characteristics. So planets should be characterized similarly. So what I like is an upper and lower size limit. The upper size limit set by objects that are too big to be planets because they're doing fusion. We call those stars. And the lower size limit set by those objects that, from a physics standpoint, don't know that they're large. Their shape is controlled by the mechanical strength of the object or the chemical bonds in it. And in between you have objects where gravity rules, where they're in hydrostatic equilibrium, so that their shape is controlled to be round <coughs> by their very nature, and yet they're not so large that they ignite with nuclear fusion. So you've got a nice range there, which seems pretty clean, physically clean, big enough to be round, because anything smaller, you're just a rock, right? Big enough to be round, small enough to not be a star. You're, cl you're, you're happy with everything in that being a planet. With one clarification, round, Due to gravity, not sure, round sure. because it's a soap bubble. Right, right. So Surface tension, around, but not due to gravity. different reason. Okay, and right. so that would put the asteroid series and Pluto and Jupiter all in the same category. It would. Okay, Steve. But let me let me just say one thing. It also puts our moon and the largest moons in our solar system in that category of planets. So it's a little bit radical, but I think more and more planetary scientists are coming to buy that planets can orbit planets just as stars orbit stars. It's really what type of object it is, not where it is. Okay, now when I think of classification <laughs> schemes, and I'll get to Steve next year. When I think of <laughs> classification schemes, I think of their utility as how sharply they identify what it is you're talking about. So when I, I think of like a bookshelf, and you say, okay, bring me the, the paperback, bring me the encyclopedia, bring me the dictionary, bring me the hardcover. These are all words, and I can send you to the shelf, and you're going to pull back. You know exactly what I, I didn't say, bring me the wood pulp, right? 
because Whoopal would be all of that, but it wouldn't be specific enough to be useful in a conversation. So you're okay with having such a diversity of objects in there for that? Absolutely. Episode? With your analogy of the bookshelf, all those things are books, and you're talking about the adjective that describes their subset, the encyclopedia book, or uh, the fiction book, or the what have you, the comic book, what have you. In, in the case of planets, we have many different ways to cut it. We have large and small planets. Uh, we have planets with satellites and without, planets so with atmospheres with and without. Actually, I coined the term in 1991. I love that term. You love it. So, so the IAU said, because Pluto did not put a check in all three criteria, one of them was, are you round? That's a check. Another one. Well, it was not? kind of a phony. The, the IAU definition says you've got to orbit the sun. So there are only planets in our solar system. Uh, you have to be round. Okay, fine. But you have to clear your orbit. You know, what does that mean? And, 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 and actually, uh, you know, what it means, uh, some people would say that it's gravitationally dominating its orbit. I had to ask uh, a sorry uh, uh, dynamicist, uh, Hal Levison, that said, Hal, what, what does that mean, clear the orbit? And he said, I'll get back to you. You know, this was like 6 p.m. Okay, wait, wait. Well, he well, sent me an email at 4 in the morning. Now I'm thinking high school teachers are in trouble. Suppose, suppose he came up with an exact meaning of what that meant. Would you then be okay with it? Well, he did. He showed me a, a nice little plot that showed to clear the orbit, to either scatter stuff out or absorb it. Over the age of the solar system, an object has to get bigger and bigger and bigger the further you get away from the sun. So that, so that if the Earth was out at, say, beyond the orbit of Saturn, it wouldn't be a planet. Pluto's not a planet because it's not mass enough to, to clear its orbit over the age of the solar system. Uh, now, now, the weird thing about the IU definition, which I think any, I don't know, English teacher or somebody would have, would have uh, uh, wrapped them on the knuckles for, is that any object that's big enough to clear its orbit over the edge of the solar system has got to be round. So if you take out that round part of the definition, it doesn't change a thing. So really, the IU definition is two operational things. One, it orbits the sun, and, and two, it can clear its orbit uh, uh, over the edge of the solar system. Uh, let me get back to Steve here. So Steve, tell me about orbit clearing, because that seemed to be yeah. an issue with Mark. And I remember it was an issue at the time, and you'd done a lot of thinking about yeah. it at the time. So could you just reflect on this, and reflect on, on, on um, the notion that you'd have a classification that would be so broad as what Alan is describing? Yeah. Well, classification is meant to com uh, facilitate communication mm -hmm. between scientists, so they know what they're talking about. So it's important to try to make that uh, reflect as much as possible the actual structure, the architecture that we're discovering. The biologists have been through this with their Linnaean system of yeah. organiz organization of organisms. Yeah, so right? it's utility. It's, just, it's important to get clear definitions that we can know what we're talking about and agree. Now, about clearing, that was an unfortunate term because, in fact, uh, planets never completely clear their orbital zones because there are reservoirs of debris, the asteroid belt and the Kuiper belt, that are continually leaking material into the zones of the planets. And once they do that, then that, that material is relatively short-lived. It either collides with the planets or it gets scattered into another part of the solar system. When you say so, leaking, you mean the dynamics kind of uh, jettisons them out intermittently? Yes, yes. So clear the orbit is a mistake because cleared means cleared. And, and in fact, the solar system is not entirely cleared by the planets. But the planets do dynamically dominate their neighborhoods. And that can be characterized both theoretically and observationally. The observational one is you take a census of all the material that could cross the orbit of a planet and potentially collide with it. It's not protected in a special orbit like being in a satellite around a planet, for example, or in a resonance with the planet. You take a census of the mass of all the planets, of all the objects, rather, that can 
potentially collide with another object, say Saturn, and you compare that mass to the mass of Saturn itself. If that ratio is very large, if, if the object has, say, more than 100 times as much mass as all the other things that could possibly collide with it, then operationally, I think that would be a good place to define a planet. And in yeah, fact, if you, you do this... the factor of 100, so... Well, in fact, if you, if you do this for all of the objects that are, that are planets and are candidate planets, including the largest asteroids and the largest Kuiper Belt objects, they divide very clearly into two groups. There's eight things in which that ratio is more than 1,000, and the other things, including Eris and Pluto and the largest asteroid series, the ratio is less than one, okay? So, so, so they divide naturally. Yes, so it seems that nature is telling us something. This gap uh, reflects the process of the formation of the solar system. Well, but it, it divides it, naturally now in this solar system. It's a mature other system. Other solar systems are different, and earlier other, it was yeah. different. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's Jack, Jack. this... Wait, wait, so so Steve, Steve is describing today's solar system. Are, so so the, we're posing the question then, should there be a definition of a planet that will change whether an object is a planet over time? And that gets away from the characteristic... Well, tell me that. Well, by the IAU's definition, if you were to uh, adopt it, um, when a which is based on association, then when, a, when a, a cowboy herds his cattle, he becomes a cow by association with them. That's just absurd. In fact, before Jack, you give Jack a chance, but I just want to say... The cowboy becomes the cow. Yes. He does. Because he's hanging out with them. Right. That's the IU definition for planets. Um, <laughs> that, that's what it boils down to. In fact, what Steve just said produces the following situation, and it's why I like characteristics and not association. You get different result for which objects are planets in which solar system you look at, so that in fact, if you found Earth's carbon copies with seven continents, oceans, blue sky, people, and Broadway lights, some of those objects that we would call an Earth would be planets and some would not, and I think that that's patently ridiculous. Depending on which solar system. Right. So, so where Jack, you look. Where are not you just when you look, but where you look. Well, so when and where? I think Steve made the right point, not about the dynamics, not the IAU definition. Even though I'm a dynamicist, I do solar system dynamics for a living. But as far as I'm concerned, what, and I wasn't in Prague, I suspect that what they did was they looked at the back of the book, the answer to the question, what are the most prominent objects in the solar system orbiting the sun? Those are what we've called planets. You could define it as four, you could define it as eight, and there's no other good grouping because even though this clearing the zone <coughs> isn't perfect, round isn't perfect. There are so many objects which are almost round that were round because of gravity and then got colder and got hit and got out of round. So you'd have an evolution of which objects are round or planets can, in can I Alan's step in? definition. I need to step in because Jack's actually making a mistake. It's just a factual mistake. And, and we've been friends for 25 years, and we'll be friends after tonight. We'll see about but, that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there'll be alcohol involved, so we'll be friends. Let, let me just let me say... I'm trying to be dispassionate here, and I think I'm it, sort of succeeding. Everything Jack just said sounded completely sensible to me. Except he made a fundamental mistake, which he didn't read what's meant by this criteria of roundness. It's not that the object is round. It's that it's large enough to be in hydrostatic equilibrium, which will make it round, but you don't have to measure its roundness you just have to measure its mass, 
and then you're basically done, except for details. You could get more accurate, but that's basically details. So it's not that the object... whether or not it would be round. But it it doesn't matter if it's been hit by something and changed its shape a little bit or even a lot. It's not that it is round. It's that it's large enough to cross a mass threshold and below a much larger mass threshold where it ignites in fusion. But if that's hard to define, Steve, how hard is that to... Yes, I, I agree with Alan that depending on whatever is your structure, there's a mass above which you're going to be wrapped. Wait a second, Neil. I want to defend myself. I was accused of making a factual error, and I didn't, and Alan did. Okay. Because so you have you an object... Okay, yes, go on. ...called <laughs> Vesta. Yeah. And its formal name is actually Poor Vesta because it was the fourth asteroid. No, it's poor Vesta. Discovered. <laughs> And Vesta has a basaltic crust, volcanic. It was at one time round, but it, and it was round because it was soft enough, it was warm enough that its gravity was able to mold it into round. In that softened state. In the softened state. And then it cooled off and it was no longer able to be rounded by its gravity, and it happened to get hit, and there's a big crater, and it didn't get round again, and therefore so, it doesn't fit the planet definition. No, it, it evolved. It evolved. It had, it had an this unfortunate series of events, and, and it evolved, and, and, and the roundness definition, but the hydrostatic equilibrium definition, is not about for all time, it's for when we're looking at it now. Oh, now you're saying it's okay to be now, but not later. I thought that was a big issue just a moment ago, at least what Alan is pointing Alan wants the characteristics no, Al to live through time and space. No, he didn't say that. He talked about what are the characteristics. Well, I'll not, say it. Not, what, <laughs> not, not what, what, what is and ever shall be characteristics. Uh, uh, you know, in the asteroid belt, yep. uh, Ceres, which is, the, which is the largest object in the asteroid belt. By far. And we are sending a, a spacecraft uh, to it, the Dawn mission, which, which I'm participating on. This is the East Coast, we say Dawn. Here. Dawn, yeah, dawn. the Dawn mission. You said Dawn. The, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. well, I'm from, from the West. Um, dawn, D-A-W-N. Anyway, uh, uh, Ceres is, we, we, now, now when Ceres was first discovered, uh, it was just seen as a point of light. And, uh, but it was in, in the place where we expected this missing planet to be between Mars and Jupiter. But uh, Herschel, who had discovered Uranus, uh, you know, looked at it, saw a point of light, and said, it can't be a planet, it's too small. It's just a point of light. So he made up this term, asteroid, like a star, to describe Ceres. Well, you know, hundreds of years, a couple hundred years later, we've actually looked at Ceres through the Hubble Space Telescope and showed that it is a round object. It's the only round object by hydrostatic equilibrium in the asteroid belt, and uh, it's differentiated. It's, it's, we've inferred that it has a like a rocky core, an ice-rich mantle. In fact, there's even... So differentiated means it was once warm enough for heavy things to go to the middle and right. light things to rise to the top. Right, and, 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 and there's also uh, models today that suggest that Ceres has a subsurface ocean, and because of that, that's today, because of that possibility, which also raises the question of life, this Dawn mission that I'm on, we're now required to go into a quarantine orbit at the end of our mission in 2015 because we don't want to contaminate a potentially astrobiologically important surface. 
Now, series, when you, when, you wanna, when you hold that object up and you compare it with all the other little fragments out there, you go, huh, is it, is it like these guys? Or, you know, hold it to compare it to the, to the Earth and, and other, other larger, rounder objects, you say, or is it more like these guys? And, and, and this was our argument 10 okay, years I ago. I put, it in, I put it in the box with, with Earth, Pluto, Mars, all those guys, because it's, it's physical characteristics and hence the processes that we expect to see there when we send a spacecraft there are alike, whereas when we're looking at these irregular chunks of rock, you know, it's just craters and that's about all you're gonna get. Let me get back to that. Sarah, you had something I just to wanted to say that now everybody understands what the debate is all about. <laughs> it's actually a fight between the geophysicists, the people who care about the individual object and what its characteristics are, and the dynamicists who just care about what the planet does to other things around it. That's right. And, That's and an in the case of the large planets, <laughs> but it's also the cosmogenists. I'm not a dynamicist. I'm, okay, I'm interested in these things intrinsically for what they are, but I see that the dynamical criteria are important because they're reflecting the conditions of the origin of the solar system. And by the way, the actual IAU definition is actually incorrect because Jupiter itself has not cleared its orbit. It actually it has dynamically dominated its orbit, but it has the Trojan. No, we agree. No one. I think we're past that. Yeah. We agreed that it wouldn't have to clear. Jupiter is a dwarf. To, it just has to be the muscled uh, one. And, and you have so, to you have Steve, to do that because otherwise, by the IAU definition, there are no planets. They're excluded outside sure, we, our solar system. And our think, solar system, everything all, has no. the orbit crossed. Let the record show we agree on that point. We so, could agree that Jupiter is a super dwarf. <laughs> <laughs> Like Jumbo mm -hmm. Shrimp, you know? Yes, that, I, yes, yes you, know. you got it. Uh, Steve, tell me, take me back to the era of the discovery of asteroids. What, okay, well, what the, insight do you have from the that? The first asteroid was discovered on New Year's Day in 1801 in the gap that had previously been recognized between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. It was expected that there might be a planet there. And when Ceres was discovered, it was heralded as the new planet. But the next year, another body in almost the same orbit was discovered called Pallas. And the astronomer William Herschel, who had discovered planet Uranus in 1781. Before these two. Before these. Recognized that this was probably the tip of an iceberg, as you, as you might think. That there was a whole population of these small bodies and that they were different from the other planets because in a, in a telescope you could not see a disk. They were point-like, point -like, which is why he called them asteroids. They looked like stars. He called them asteroids. And he predicted that there would be a whole family of them. And in fact, he wrote to the discoverer of Ceres, an Italian astronomer named Piazzi, and he said in his letter, to, but that's to, not his actual letter. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, I, you get he, access to yeah, stuff I don't know. He con <laughs> congratulated him on this discovery, and he said, to be the first to make known to us a new class of primary bodies is certainly more glorious than merely to add what, if it were to be called a planet, must have a very inferior rank because of its smallness. Okay. So Piazzi was not amused to get this letter because he... Herschel had already discovered his own planet. He wanted a planet, too. Okay. Yeah, do you but, think Herschel didn't but, want to be shown up? <laughs> yeah. Perhaps. But in fact, Herschel's intuition about this was right. It was a new class of objects, and Herschel thought deeply about how we should define a planet in terms of the ones that were already known. And one of his criteria was that they should be, they should be spaced considerably apart from each other. Herschel said that. As, Herschel said that, as the asteroids were not. Okay. Now, subsequent years, until the 1840s, Many more asteroids were discovered, and they were all, they were all uh, classified as planets by, by many astronomers. And finally, it was realized that this was getting out of hand. They, all had, they were all tiny. They all had orbits that were, that were crossing each other. They were fundamentally different 
dynamically. Dynamically. Yes, from the rest of the planets, and so they should including be. Including Ceres, including which the first one. Subsurface ocean Ceres. was dynamically yes. different. Go on. Yes. yes. <laughs> okay. Well, something similar I, I happened. I bite. <laughs> something very similar happened with the discovery of Pluto, a, a, a small uh, object beyond the orbit of Neptune. In 1930, it was almost immediately realized, in, uh, six months later, by an astronomer named, named Leonard, that this was probably the first of a whole class of objects that lived beyond the, the uh, orbit of Neptune, and that they should be classified separately. But unfortunately, it took 76 years until the, 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 the uh, decision was made that this should be a new classification. You're saying of someone hypothesized shortly after the discovery of Pluto yeah. that Pluto might be the tip of yet another kind yes. of iceberg out there. Yes, and nobody paid attention to that. And by, by thinking of Pluto as the ninth planet, people did not systematically look for what could be its companions in this zone beyond Neptune, now called the Kuiper Belt. Well, and in fact, they could have begun discovering them as, as early as the 1950s. In fact, there even are some telescope images of these Kuiper Belt objects that date from, from much before that, even before the discovery of Pluto. But people weren't looking for it. Let me read something to, and get your reaction to it. From David Jewett, who, like I said, could not make it here today. David Jewett is the co-discoverer of the first Kuiper Belt object, or some would say the second Kuiper Belt object. <laughs> um, Pluto, of course, being the first. Uh, let me just read what he says. I, I'm, I'm intrigued by this, and I welcome your reaction. I'm going to start with uh, uh, Gibor on this when I'm done. We never know the true effects of mislabeling Pluto as a planet in 1930. You already know what, what side he's on here. Um, <laughs> on the one hand, I'd like to think that how we classify something shouldn't make a big difference to our understanding of it. On the other hand, history is full of counterexamples showing how mislabeling and misconceptions can blind us to the truth. The reason is that the brain has tremendous difficulty in perceiving things that it does not expect to see. Giving something the wrong label can actually prevent us from seeing what it really is. Misclassifying Pluto as a planet perfectly, perfectly concealed its true status as a large Kuiper Belt object and so helped blind us to the whole population of Kuiper Belt objects in the long years between 1930 and 1992 when 1992 QB1 was discovered, the first Kuiper Belt. Thinking that Pluto was the last planet effectively closed our minds to the possibility of anything else being out there. If we had recognized in 1930 that Pluto was the tip of the Kuiper Belt iceberg, we might have been motivated and, the, and we would have been able to discover the rest of the Kuiper Belt much, much sooner than we actually did. Gibor, respond to that. Well, I think, you know, Dave is making an assumption here which is that if you call it a planet, then you won't think about its dynamics, which I don't think is fair. I mean, somebody did think about it. It wasn't caught, picked up. But it doesn't seem to me that just because people didn't start looking for other Kuiper Belt objects that you can't call it a planet. That just means the dynamicists were asleep at the wheel. It was still a planet. Well, well, they just didn't think about but what its dynamics were. Being asleep at the wheel is part of the psychological profile of not being able to see what's out there. Well, I'm not a therapist. I'm an astrophysicist. <laughs> <laughs> That's their problem. And actually, by the way, yeah, the discoverer of Pluto, Clyde Tombaugh, he actually did look for the rest of his life and found nothing. Technically, he could have found some of the other large, now so-called dwarf planets. But Steve, I, I, but I thought Steve, uh, uh, Clyde completed the survey, didn't he? I believe so. Yeah, he did so complete the survey. So, so then what is Jewett talking about? Here. He says well, here, the evidence for this is strong, that you would, we would miss the Kuiper Belt. 
Many of the brighter KBOs, Kuiper Belt objects, discovered only in the last decade, have been found in telescopic data recorded as far back as the 1950s. Uh, the um, but it's not, it's but, easier but to recover an object when you know where it may have been on a given date once you've measured its orbit. There's he he claims KBOs were not actually found in the 50s and 60s because nobody looked. No. Why it, would you? No, 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 no. But, but, uh, you're interrupting him. No, <laughs> I don't right, think so. Why, why would you if Pluto is the end of it all? And I will remind no, no. Alan Stern, one of your slogans for the, the um, New Horizons mission was, let us complete the reconnaissance of the nine planets, or something like that. Can you repeat it for me? Yeah, we had a lot of slogans when we were trying to raise a billion dollars. Okay. I, mean, that's, <laughs> I don't think that has anything to do with science. Yeah. You know, okay. you know, Jew, I, won't, I won't hold it to that. You're, you're absolved. <laughs> Jew had discovered the KBOs but, because the technical resources had just become available and, and, with the advent of CCGs. And Jewett's, and Jewett's argument, Neil, yeah. Jewett's argument is, is wrong. Um, as Jack was saying, David's argument is wrong? Dave, excuse me, David's it's argument. My, I'm just reading. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, people looked in uh, uh, the 40s, the 50s. There were surveys in the 1970s. Charlie Cowell's work that was very well publicized discovered the first centaur. People were out there looking. Dave's just wrong about that. Now, what he discovered in the 90s was very important. It's the third zone of our solar system. It changed the map of our solar system. But Dave's entire argument boils down to an, an argument of location. And that just doesn't get you anywhere in terms of understanding the objects to map them based on their location. Let me give you an example. I'm a human being, but I also happen to be an American by dint of location. Those are not at odds with one another. They're two separate characteristics. Pluto is a planet, and it's also a Kuiper Belt object because any object in the Kuiper Belt will be a Kuiper Belt object. My spacecraft, New Horizons, when it flies through the Kuiper Belt, will temporarily be a Kuiper Belt object. That so just tells you. A cow. You're admitting just, okay. No, I'm telling you that that location doesn't shed any light. The locational arguments don't help you. Mm -hmm. yeah. right, so, Sarah, Sarah, do, do we find uh, Kuiper Belts in other star systems? Well, we find things a lot like the Kuiper Belt, but right now we can only find. Things, it's very hard to find a solar system twin, so we're able to find things much more massive than the Kuiper Belt. But it's a great question. What should you call it? Not a Kuiper Belt. Well, how do you see it if it's all tiny little icy bodies? How do, how do you actually detect it? Well, there's two ways. In some cases, we have beautiful images where you can see these dusty disks around oh, so stars. Oh, it glows. Yes, it glows. It's so, a glowing but, zone. Most of the time, we just see it as an extra glow on a star at infrared wavelengths. And that's how we find other Kuiper belts. Yeah, those are there, the uh, those are the sure. debris generated by the the extra extrasolar Kuiper yeah, belt. Yeah, the, the they crash into each other and they make a lot of dust, and that's dust. that's what we see. Yeah, that's what we're seeing. So uh, my concern is if and and I think Mark made this point earlier. If we're going to start defining things according to our own solar system, and we have all these other solar systems in the waiting, that could greatly inform our lexicon that we bring to bear on this question then this all could just simply be premature. Do, do you agree, Jack? It's, well, it's, the definition of the a planet has changed over the millennia. In fact, the definition that lasted the longest had seven planets, and they're not the seven that you might think. Earth was not considered a planet. Planets were things in the heavens which moved against the fixed stars. Mercury, the, the Venus, sun. Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, the sun, and the moon. Days of the week are named after the seven planets. 
Now, the big change was when Copernicus realized that Earth orbited the sun and was like these other objects, these other five objects known. The sun was changed in its categorization. The moon, because it actually does orbit the Earth, was changed in its categorization, and the number of planets went down to six. So it went, to, went down to five because we lost the sun and the moon, and went up to six because we gained the Earth. Right, right, and at the same time. Okay, so, so now, but there was no ISU at the time, all right? Right. So, so, so was there any written definition that we would carry forth from the time of Copernicus, or was it just kind of a gentleman's agreement about what was going on? That was, I, cult, that was culture in play. Culture. Yeah. Let me get back to well, that culture. Hold on. You said earlier that <coughs> culture, the culture has a definition for planet. I'm not going to argue that. But why should the scientific community care? I don't know any other branch of science that checks with the public to see if their words are okay with them before they invoke it in their see, own conversation. See, if you didn't think that way, Neil, you wouldn't have gotten in trouble with the New York Times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we could just real but, quick, we got uh, Kuiper Belt. We got one minute to look at this. So we've got uh, Kuiper, known Kuiper Belt objects, and uh, some objects identified as Plutinos. Who can quickly tell me about Plutinos? You got a Plutino Plut person. Plutinos yeah. are are just those Kuiper Belt objects that follow the same kind of quote resonant orbit that Pluto orbits in. So it's a dynamical subset of the Kuiper Belt. Okay. So uh, so. They are normal, they're otherwise normal Kuiper Belt objects, but it's another classification that attaches with it a dynamical consideration. It's, 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 it's about the kind of orbit they're in. They go around the sun exactly twice for every three orbits of Neptune due to the dynamical dominance of Neptune, and that protects them from colliding with Neptune, even though some of them cross its orbit like Pluto. So it sounds like if we just sort of add these new words, if we just add new words, some will be dynamical words, some will be shape words, some will be locational words, then why not create a whole, a whole uh, sequence? I mean, I don't, have, I don't have a problem with defining planet in any way you'd like. And I, I, I like Alan's point that, all right, they're all just books of some kind. And now what kind of a book is it? It's an encyclopedia book. It's a dictionary book. So why, why didn't everyone agree to something like that? Why is no, that so objectionable? Yeah. This so actually you might actually this and that, and you have six words maybe, or letters, or some kind of code. <laughs> I don't have a problem yeah. with that. Well, uh, well like Jack said, that planet's definitions change us. over time. That's probably what's going to happen. Eventually, what's going to be established is the way scientists and the public actually use words. Let's talk about exoplanets for a minute. In exoplanets, it's very different from the solar system. There are lots of them, and there's no one writing a law or the rule that says you have to call it this, you have to call it that. Yeah. And there's so many kinds of planets. First, people found these planets, the so-called hot Jupiters. They're so close to the star, their orbit is about four days. They're heated to like 1,000 degrees. People got used to the word hot Jupiters, and then they found planets even hotter, even closer to the star. And so what did they call them? The very hot Jupiters. <laughs> we have things we call super-Earths. We have water worlds and carbon planets yet to be discovered. And by the way, so astronomers have used we have this very large array Telescope yeah, but I'm just saying that, like you said, lots of things can be a planet, and there's these adjectives describing each one, and eventually the solar system is headed in that direction so as well. So speaking as a yeah. planetary scientist, 
I like all this diversity, and we are discovering for the first time the richness of nature, what kinds of planetary types. We probably only scratched the surface. I think Sarah would agree with that. Fifty years from now, if you brought this audience together, uh, you, would, you would have a lot more variety than even what's been discovered and shocked us in the last ten years. So we need, to, we need to be inclusive to all these kinds of things that we're discovering. That's what science does. It takes new facts and incorporates them rather than rejecting. You asked about uh, the, what would we have had if there had been an IEU long ago. Part of the, well, reason, part huh. of the reason that the, the, the Prague debacle went down was that a lot of people in Prague wanted to limit the number of planets in the solar system. You heard quotes like... Uh, 50 would be a ridiculous number. My daughter couldn't memorize that. Mike Brown said that. I said to Mike, I said, well, I guess we're going back to eight Mike states, Brown, aren't Mike Brown, major discoverer <laughs> of objects in the outer solar right. system. But, yeah. but if there had been an By IU... By these kids memorize 50 dinosaur names. I mean, exactly. That, and 50 not, states. 50 states. And they it's, deal with an infinite not, number of rivers and mountains. We, we, we can deal with that. Yeah. But if the IU had been around and used that argument in 1609, 400 years ago, when, Columbus, uh, excuse me, when Galileo first turned his telescope to the stars and saw an uncountable number, they would have had to legislate that all those things aren't really stars because there are too many to write down in the books at the time. It's Steve, patently absurd. Give me some historical perspective here. Oh, 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 I want to look at another aspect of this, which is the solar system looks like it's dynamically full. You cannot put another planet among the existing ones without destabilizing it and some of the others. The only place where you might be able to do that is in the, the asteroid belt where you could put an Earth-sized planet. But if you put one between the other planets, it, 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 would, it would be kicked out or it would collide. Now, that's telling us something. Uh, so just let me get that clear. Dynamically full is a term relatively new to me. But, but what he means it, is it, it you means can't put any more large planets. You could put lots of Pluto-scale dwarf planets in the Kuiper Belt and Oort Cloud. You could put lots of Earths but, in but the Oort Cloud. No problem. Not among the other planets, though. You have the reservoirs of the Asteroid Belt and the Oort Cloud. Those are relatively stable. But try to put one among the gas giants are among terrestrial planets, and it won't last very long. You can calculate that. So the gravitational interaction will kick it out. It will kick it out. Now, what happened, what this is reflecting is that the solar system began overfull, overfilled, and the dynamical interactions began tossing things out until it settled down to a state of, of marginal stability. Why does that tell you it started overfull? Because if you, if you found a cup of coffee that was filled absolutely up to the brim, you could assume it was probably being poured to over the brim. You know what, I okay, never liked that analogy because I always pour my tea right to the rim. Okay, so it's telling us, and, yeah. and if you look at the... Oh, at so, the so you're yeah. saying, just, I want to clarify. Yeah. Just, okay, so you're saying, going back to your coffee cup. No, yeah. let me say, he's, it's too coincidental to have the solar system as it is. You couldn't just put stuff in such a way that it's perfectly, you know, marginally stable. Mm -hmm. Besides it's which, all of, our, all of our observations of other solar systems and formation would strongly argue that you start over full. Right, but that, we're the book king, but this okay, so doesn't inform you as to what a planet is. I just want to clarify, just, so, so I just want to clarify, what you're saying is, we, in a solar system that is full, either it was born full, exactly full, which is, which is sort of statistically untenable, or it was born over full, yes. like your overfilled cup of coffee, we can guarantee there's coffee down in the saucer. Yeah. You just lift it up and you'll see it. Yeah. So it starts over full, and then the dynamics kicks it out, absorbs it in, and it settles out at being exactly full. Yes, and it seems to be the case for other planetary systems where you've got more than two planets. You can do dynamical calculations there, and if you try to add another planet, it destabilizes the situation. But there, 
that's been looked at in a number of cases, but there were a few exceptions. There were a couple of cases where there seemed to be a wide gap where you could put a planet and in it would an not be stable. System. Yes, and that was the basis of a prediction that you should, in fact, find a planet there. And in two cases, that has happened. The first successful predictions of a planet since the prediction of Neptune in 1846 it happened just recently. There were an exoplanet system yeah. where people saw more than one planet yes. in that system, yes. saw, hey, there's a gap there. Yes. If it, this were full, yes. if it were uh, dynamically full, there ought to be a planet there. Right. So let's, so let's, let's check. Yes, it, and they found them. Now, I think this is a good way. This thing needs a definition. Things that are dynamically dominant. When these solar systems uh, to toss out the, o the overflow of, of, and they settle down to a state of marginal stability, what's left? There's a good, I think a, it's a sensible way to define planets. But what this it's is not about clear it. that this is how... It's not clear how planetary systems form in this manner. Because if you, you can put a lot of planets on fairly close orbits, if they have nearly circular orbits, and you can put it, planets actually closer together than we have in our solar system. But if you have planets on wildly eccentric orbits, then they have to be very distant from one another. And if you get a system that's just a little bit over full, because you move a planet a little bit in one direction, then you can have planets starting to scatter off each other and half of them are more can be thrown but, out you, of the system. But, but Neil, I want to make the point that this isn't informing you about which objects are planets, it's informing you about the architecture of given solar systems. Yeah, but I like that because if you, if, remember we had an argument earlier about... You like you, it. Are you defining yeah. it in time or in place? And no. one statement might be, here's a definition of a planet in a mature solar system. Why isn't that fair? I, well, I want to ask, what do you call all those things that got kicked out a while ago? Weren't, like weren't those somewhere. planets, too? What do too? we call them? What, uh, Sarah, what well, do we, we can call them rogue planets. Yeah. Rogue? Some, ah, some there's, a, there's like, an adjective oh, wait, wait, wait. on planet. Some That's people right. like planemo, but certainly there are lots... Say that again? There's still planemo. planets. Planemo? Yeah, planemo. You know, the problem with all the... Wait, wait, wait. What does that mean? <laughs> it's just a name Plan It means planemo. planetary mass object, since I made it up. I can say Oh, there you go. No, the, prob the problem with trying wait, wait, wait. to... P pla PLA, pla Planemo. Net mass object. Planemo. Planemo. Planemo, yes. Planetary mass object. So that, that, that just a that's, that's my name for what Alan's talking about. If you just go with characteristics, you say it's round and it doesn't have fusion. And it doesn't but, have to be orbiting and, a star. But it could be, right, it just could be orbiting a, another planet. It could be not orbiting anything. doesn't matter. This is what it is planetary mass object. So you according know. to you, it would be that before it's anything else. And it would stay that, too. Ah. No matter yeah. where it is, yeah, you know, no matter when. You know, no, the problem with all this dynamical shoehorning. We think that these objects form around stars, so they would start as both a planet and a planema. And then yeah. they would get tossed off yes, into interstellar space. Yes, they wouldn't have cleared space. their orbit. Because they're so low mass, they're low enough mass well, to get tossed out. I don't. Uh, well, I'm not advocating the clearing of the orbit definition. Well, here's I, the problem I have is that I think round is really bad, and the reason for that is because there are big things which are round. There are small things that aren't round, but there is this zone where they're sort of round, 
And because big objects. You don't mean a physical zone, you mean a sort of a I mean a definitional zone. Definitional zone for, and this is the, by round, I mean the amount of shaping due to gravity versus shaping due to hydrostatic forces. Hey, and isn't that the same, no, thing? The same Well, that doesn't matter. Different, difference by physical forces, which can make it oddly shaped, and gravitational forces, which well, can make but, it Well, but round. Jack, you're talking about the fact that nature makes things in a continuum of situations. That's that right. That same thing is going to be true for any dynamical definition you make. I there agree. will be something that's almost like that, but not quite. But if we look at our own solar system... Well, we I don't see, do that. I look at all the solar systems. But you don't... We haven't seen the small objects there. Now, the spacecraft Kepler launched last Friday may put us, by finding Earth-like and even smaller planets around other stars, bringing this question to other stars. I don't think there's a good line, but in our solar system, there are eight objects which are clearly different from the others. No. And you okay. have a gradual, and if it was no. 25, I would have Mark no problem. Mark has been politely quiet for a long time. And it's been hurting me. <laughs> it's been hurting Bust me. Bust in his gut here. So Mark, go, go Mark. Okay, you know, there, there's a, the, the, kind of the source of the conflict, if you will, between people who want to shove this definition to a, into a dynamical box and tighten the screws down real tight. Is, is the evolution of the study of planets, the study of the solar system over the last 40 years. Back in the 19th century, you know, when you're just looking at these points of light through a telescope, pretty much all you can do is dynamics. You know, and that was the case you know, into a good chunk of the 20th century. But, but what happened was in the 60s, we started sending spacecraft out into the solar system, and we started looking at these objects up close and personal, and, and, and suddenly they were something more than kind of fuzzy balls or, or, or points of light. There were places where we started to see atmospheric processes, geology, volcanism uh, uh, on, on these others' worlds, these, these processes that we see on the Earth uh, now being manifested elsewhere. And so the evolution of our, of our profession has been uh, uh, substantial over this last period of time because of the vast amount of data just growing exponentially uh, uh, with time. Of these, of these other worlds, so that, so that, I mean, when I started out the business, you know, there, I'd say that planetary science was dominated primarily by telescope jockeys, which is why, you know, most planetary scientists were members of astronomical professional societies back then. As opposed but, to ge geological but, societies. But today, planetary science has been morphing into a kind of merging into terrestrial science because the physics that we use to explain what we're seeing on these other worlds uh, is, is the same physics that we're using to explain the processes that we see on the Earth. But Mark, so now, now when we try to group things together from the dynamical perspective, you know, they're just interested in saying, okay, I'm going to treat all these planets, all these objects out there as dots, as, as point masses moving around, and I only care how they interact with each other and how they clear zones and how they dominate or not dominate and what their, the eccentricity of their orbits are. But for those of us who study the physical characteristics of, of all these worlds, which is just growing with time, the question ar arises where we would say that geology arises. Where, at what point do we expect to see these processes start to arise on worlds? Because we don't see them on asteroids. We don't see them on these irregularly shaped hunks of rocks. We see them when you, when you group all the objects that we sent spacecraft past into two categories, 
the, uh, the object that you see these processes on and the objects that exhibit none of these processes, all the objects that you see these processes on are round. Okay, but let me ask, maybe, let me be bold. Perhaps <laughs> planetary science is still in its infancy in a way where you have no business classifying anything at all yet because oh. the, the data is still not in from for places such as the uh, Kepler telescope, which is going to observe 170,000 stars looking for Earth-like planets. When I think of this, because let me remind you all, I am professionally not a planetary scientist. I study galaxies professionally. They are planetary scientists and do research in this field. Gabor, among them, also knows stars. You know that the stellar classification scheme, as clumsy as it is, it works. You can, I can, the sun is a G2 Roman numeral five star. We know exactly what that means. Mm -hmm. Even if the public is, if it doesn't serve the public, the professional knows what that means. Are we, are we just waiting for that kind of complex lexicon to work its way into the data that's now pouring in from the solar system? Well, yes, but the question we're debating right now isn't whether it's a G25 or a G35 or whatever. We're debating what is a star. And that also has been sort of pretty much settled. Uh, and it's, you know, that's an object that's made of, of gas that has fusion going on in it. And so this planet debate is another, it's, it's about another class of objects, which are not that, okay. And we also know what a rock is. We all were comfortable with that. And so we have this intermediate regime, and we're trying to figure out what, what a planet is. And I want to point out... for the immaturity of the field. That's because we're not, yeah. right? Well, I mean, at the time the stellar classification scheme was being developed, late 1800s, yeah. early 1900s, we had already gotten past the point, what is a star? Yeah, we had already figured out what stars were. So, that, so, so we're there. We were there right. back then. That's so, right. so Neil, Although let me make the analogy. Where we are in planetary science, I like your, your bit about it's immature. Planetary science is a very, very hard field. Because, as Mark said, we had to develop space flight and then the technology to, de to detect extrasolar planets, and that took to the very tail end of the 21st century before we could really understand, and it really opened our eyes. We have hundreds of extrasolar planets, and now we're facing hundreds of planets in our own solar system. So I like to make the analogy, it's as if you were a biologist that grew up on a desert island, you only knew a few species, and then you were taken on a world tour and presented with all this variety, you'd be adapting to categorization, and that's what we're doing. But there is basic agreement, and let me tell you what it is. I think somebody's going to disagree, but I think essentially <laughs> everyone agrees that a planet is a, a celestial object bigger than some criteria and smaller than some other criteria. And then there's pretty good agreement on the upper size limit. We, we know when it's a star and we're saying planets are smaller. The debate is all about where do we cut it off. The dynamicists would cut it off at one place, those of us that look at the characteristics of these objects and understand what they're about, cut it off in a different place. Do you love Science in the City podcasts? There are a couple ways you can show your support. First, you could become a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. You can do that by going online at www.nias.org. Second, get your name and advertising in a Science in the City podcast by sponsoring one. For more information, email Adrian Burke at A-B-U-R-K-E at N-Y-A-S.org. Did you know you can subscribe to Science in the City podcast on iTunes and get our newest story every week downloaded automatically to your iTunes library? Search Science in the City in your iTunes search bar. 
you have any questions or comments about our show, we would love your feedback. Please send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. And don't forget to check us out online, scienceandthecity.org. See you next week.